Welcome back to Shift of the Gaze, Our Theology for Our World. This is Michael Kimpan, along with our co-host, Dr. Joanne Marie Terrell, Associate Professor of Theology, Ethics, and the Arts at Chicago Theological Seminary, and author of Power in the Blood, The Cross, and the African-American Experience, as well as the forthcoming title, The Way, the Wheel, and the Cross, Toward a Womanist Phenomenology of Interreligiosity. In addition, Dr. Terrell is a prolific poet, playwright, producer, costume designer, and singer-songwriter. Grounded in the womanist norms of survival, liberation, and creative self-expression, our Shift of the Gaze podcast is but one manifestation of her giftedness, and our collaboration on this project is my honor. We continue our discussion of this series on sacramentality and uncommon good in responding to these questions— What is the common good, and how do we achieve it? Is there something more to be desired than simply the common good? And can creative, sacramentally-minded people of the world generate enough social, spiritual, and political goodwill to achieve an uncommon good? We ask these questions not only in critique of society, religion, culture, politics, and economics, but also out of a genuine desire to highlight, as we stated in our last episode, the common sense values of love, hospitality, cooperation, and communality to which you refer as sacramentality. Dr. Terrell, could you say more about how this concept plays out in achieving this uncommon good given the current state of our nation and world? Sacramentality is a way of being and being together. And to achieve it requires a shift of our gaze from the self-regard that assumes that our truth is the only truth that matters, to other regard that assumes a posture of listening to and learning from other people's truths, carrying their truths in our hearts and acting honorably on what we know about others, not in order to negate our own truth, but rather in order to expand our appreciation for our own stories, our own struggles, our own hopes, in order to situate them in a wider truth that humankind, everywhere we live, love, and work, are similarly situated, similarly vulnerable, similarly needy, similarly creative, similarly capable of mirroring the transcendent, and deserve our advocacy and our outcry when we suffer tragedy or injustice. The word sacramentality derives from sacer, meaning holy, and that just means whole-making. To see people, not just people, but in particular the vast majority of the people in the world who are non-white, who are women, whose children's fates are connected to their own, and this is important, who are not just poor, but who have been made poor by the legacies of imperialism, colonialism, and perpetual militarism. To see them as holy, and holy with a W, is to see not just their lack or poverty, whether that impoverishment is material, anthropological, or spiritual in nature, but also their richness and uniqueness as mirrors of divine reality. It is to receive with gladness their love, hospitality, and creativity, and to mirror our appreciation of these back to them. 
Yet in recent administrations in countries around the world, with ours leading the way, we've seen the rise of nationalism, anti-immigrant policies, the suppression of minorities, the rollback of civil and human rights, the reassertions of patriarchy, heteropatriarchy, and cis-heteropatriarchy, the emboldenment of the many forms of racism worldwide, the elimination of legal protections for the most vulnerable, including the earth, all this in the name of a populism that does not truly serve the common good, yet pretends to do so while narrowly defining its prime beneficiaries. In America specifically, the impeached resident of the White House and his GOP lackeys have successfully kept the people's attention focused on moral outrage after moral outrage, using their gerrymandered majority power over the courts and specious logic to defy established laws, to buttress their power, and to tie up our metaphorical hands so that, assisted by our highly conditioned consumerism and individualism, their plundering of the world's goods and resources can go on unchecked. This calls for consciousness and intentionality about achieving not just the common good, but an uncommon good that decenters our individualistic perspective, corrects our understanding of the universe as profoundly connected, as profoundly in need of the perquisites of unbounded love, which incidentally is why most people even require a God concept, and most importantly, as still growing. This growing edge is the limit of sacramentality. We ask, can creative, sacramentally-minded people of the world generate enough social, spiritual, and political goodwill to achieve an uncommon good? Shift of the gaze was made possible by the commitments we both bring to this agenda. For a long time and in many ways, Michael, you yourself have already been engaged in this call of the universe. You have invited others to participate, in Zora Neale Hurston's words, in a grand association with life through the organization you founded five years ago, Uncommon Good Collective. Although you may not have called it that, you have invited others to live within the scope of sacramentality through our collective creativity, resources, and goodwill. What were and are your motivations and inspirations to continue in this particular work? I was raised, indoctrinated really, in the predominantly white, conservative, evangelical belief system whose practical theology espoused a salvation that hinged on individualism, personal piety, and capitalist values that I now see as clearly antithetical to the very teachings and example of the Jesus whom their scriptures taught me to revere. Truth be told, in many ways, I'm the theological enemy of my 20-year-old self, who for years worked in churches and parachurch organizations that, as you say, narrowly defined the common good, and perhaps more importantly, who was worthy of it. Upon leaving that camp and expanding my circle, I developed a relationship with my managerial co-worker at a Starbucks where I'd initially worked for a supplementary income to poorly paid pastoral positions, which I eventually left to pursue a career in coffee. Through our friendship, I began to see how people from within my own faith tradition had instigated the most painful of his experiences as an HIV-positive gay man. 
Our discussions over the following season served as a catalyst for me to slowly peel away many of the judgmental and harmful layers inherent within the faith narrative and biblical interpretations I'd been taught, not only concerning LGBTQ people, but also exposing the multitude of interconnected injustices all but demanded by this toxic distortion of Christian teaching. In the years that followed, the countless conversations with him and people I had consciously or unconsciously chronically othered in the past solidified my belief that the call, not only to Christians but to all people, is primarily to love thy neighbor by standing in solidarity with the marginalized and to prioritize speaking up alongside and on behalf of, but never instead of, the oppressed. The phrase I first encountered in advocacy spaces for the trans community, not about us without us, helped forge a path in the continued awakening to my own privilege, opening my eyes to the access to places and spaces of power afforded to me simply as a result of my prescribed status as a white cisgender heterosexual male. As I expanded my thinking and cultivated professional opportunities in keeping with my newly revised sense of calling to enter into these spaces as a sort of theological Trojan horse challenging the gatekeepers and power structures themselves, my experiences within a number of already existing faith-based organizations proved useful in leading me to the creation of something different than what I'd previously encountered. Although I am grateful for the tremendous opportunities and relationships forged within the context of my past work in those spaces, what became apparent to me was the need to invite the love, goodwill, and wisdom of others as an essential component of the work itself, outside of the pre-existing structures, and to charter an organization devoted to the cultivation of an uncommon good in our social relations as well as our theological orientation. It is this sharing of resources, both material and immaterial, which serves as the foundation for the collective's modus operandi and that allows us to imagine and hopefully realize a shared economy of goodness. The concept of sacramentality that undergirds shift of the gaze gives theoretical grounding and voice to many of the principles upon which I founded Uncommon Good Collective just over five years ago, valuing, as we do, all people, their creativity, their faith postures, their expressions of divinity, and doing so in an invitational way that importantly decenters piety and instead recenters justice and promotes human flourishing. As we contemplate an uncommon good in relation to the degraded state of affairs of contemporary American society in particular, I'm reminded not only of the importance of organizing around these principles and commitments, but also of the difficulty in dislodging my own embedded theologies which presume the opposite of sacramentality, that at best minimize and at worst demonize others' sacred worth. For me, this dislodging initially began in the context of proximity and relationship and was and is still expanded through intentionally seeking to be more responsible in word, thought, and deed, not only to what I am coming to believe, but primarily to the demonized, discounted people who are living out their intersexual realities, who have to struggle to survive, to be free themselves, and to express themselves creatively. This Shift of the Gaze podcast with you, Dr. Terrell, serves as one way in which Uncommon Good Collective can live into our values by engaging in public conversation, highlighting topics and perspectives which have a direct impact on our national, local, and even hyper-local work in the messiness of granular community gatherings and neighborhood projects. Primarily, our collective seeks to educate, agitate, and instigate, 
bringing attention to the consequence of our inherited theologies and perspectives, critically analyzing them through the lens of sacramentality, and hopefully inspiring individuals and organizations to shift their gaze from self-serving ontologies to an others-centered focus. In each area of the social ills we've addressed on this podcast, I suspect any substantial change from the world as it is to the world as it should be must be born out of identifying areas of needed repentance and reconciliation from within our own traditions and social locations, speaking truth to power while intentionally providing opportunities of engagement and access across perceived differences as we seek to invite others into an understanding of sacramentality for themselves and for all people. Much of the bridge-building work and experience I've had at the intersection of faith, gender, and sexuality will yet prove to be useful in that effort in relation to Uncommon Good Collective's expanding commitment to justice and equality for all. The vast disparity between economic classes, the rampant toxic masculinity perpetuated within our patriarchal society, and the racial injustice that black people and other people of color experience by way of the so-called justice system, and by the nation's partiality to white people codified in legislation and all the institutions of socialization compel me and the Uncommon Good Collective to work tirelessly toward disrupting the accepted state of affairs, which are in part a direct result of the theologies defended by many within the faith spaces of my own background. The unneighborliness and unrelenting injustice that black people indigenous people, and other people of color continually experienced by way of police brutality, mass incarceration, extrajudicial killings, and historically and concurrently through mass killings is a product of the idolatry inherent in racism in which white people have arrogated unto themselves the creator's right to command and control the lives and destinies of whole peoples. In a poem I wrote of the same name, I call it a trickle-down holocaust. In this phrasing, I do not wish to minimize the gravity of what happened to the Jewish and Roma people in Nazi Germany, or to the slaughtered Armenian people, or to the Tutsis and Twa of Rwanda, or to any other historically genocided people, whether or not the fact of genocide is officially acknowledged. I want to point out that although we have rough estimates for the number of people who were stolen from Africa and brought to North, Central, and South America and the Caribbean, we simply do not know the number of people whom the enslavers slaughtered in the process. And we can only inadequately assess the number of lynching victims in the history of America that stretches from slavery to the present. Just because the white slaveholders had the will to keep black people enslaved in perpetuity does not mean they did not have the authority to exterminate us if they so willed. And it was an authority that white townsfolk would and do exercise from time to time on individuals as well as on thriving black communities. And herein is idolatry. And herein, I think, is the source of white people's attachment to a privatistic reading of the Second Amendment being loath to lose that authority, and what my colleague Dr. Julia Speller calls the presumption of their own uniqueness that assumes a divine imprimatur over and above other people. I'm glad that you through Uncommon Good Collective also address the toxic masculinity that women have to navigate and militate against continuously. In the American context, the presumption of the superiority and natural right of men to dominate 
allows for the enduring wage gap between women and men working in the same professions and roles and wantonly promotes rape culture. It also drives the current global slave trade. Many Americans think of slavery as a thing of the past, but the fact is over 70 million people in the world are trapped in various forms of human trafficking, slavery by any other name, for their unpaid labor, their viable organs, and or their utility as sexual slaves, including children, women, and men. I just returned from a travel seminar in India. One of the most distressing things I saw from the comfort of my tour bus was street kids playfully simulating sexual intercourse with their hands as if to proffer themselves in this way. The girls and boys were not more than five or six years old. This was in daytime hours in the middle of a busy intersection in New Delhi, the nation's capital. Though I shifted my gaze and went within myself to think and to resacralize in my own imagination the children I had witnessed do these things, it grieved me immensely. I wondered who had sexualized their youthful imaginations and possibly their lives, and if they themselves were trapped in this global demonarchical system of human trafficking. At a women's shelter and advocacy group, I learned a bit more than I already knew about shake marriages that are often hastily arranged with parental consent, that often end in the rape and subsequent abandonment of girls as young as 10 years old, perhaps younger. So to label it toxic masculinity is not just to indict the perquisites of maleness, but to call for a radical transformation of the world and all its systems that are inimical to the well-being of children and women and vulnerable men everywhere. To call out racism is to decry the banality with which white power brokers center white humanity, white people's stories, white people's desires, but deny the same to other people while portraying themselves as innocent, wholesome, effervescent, only worthy stewards of the goods of this world, effectively making themselves the gods of this world. For people of color who are the vast majority of the world's poor, for women, for gender nonconforming folks, and all of our allies, it takes uncommon intentionality not to believe the lies about our inferiority, to live with consciousness, to live at all, really, to maintain our hope, and to believe in the transformative power of love. This is why the woman's mandate of self-love regardless is not a glib assertion, but a call to a lived world struggle for the people who understand how the lies live inside of us, that institutions of socialization, including our schools, churches, temples, synagogues, and mosques, and even hospitals perpetuate with the help of an unrepentant music and movie industry and their uncritical consumers. In speaking these truths, we are hoping to invite your reflection on what it takes to shift our commitments away from the self-serving social and religious paradigms that we have inherited to more just and generous ways of being and being together. We are talking about a push for a renewed world, which calls for the hard work of introspection and the dedicated recentering of hospitality, love, justice, cooperation, and communality in all of our religious and humanitarian orientations. 
In the next episode of Shift of the Gaze, we will discuss ideological and organizing principles through which we hope to inspire conversation and instigate action toward a sacramental vision of the world to which we aspire. In the meantime, as you navigate the intersections of your personal, social, and religious identities, while you are coming to sacramental ways of seeing yourselves and others, to sacramental ways of being in the world, we hope you dance.